It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by the University of California, committed to advancing our world through discovery. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. The University of California, the power of public. And by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com and using the promo code POLITICAL. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May Day, May 1st, 2015, the Can I Get Some of That Clinton Cash edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of CBS Face the Nation and Slate is here by my side and sneezing off in New Haven. <laughs> old or maybe New York. Are you in New York or New Haven? She's Emily? No, I'm in New Haven She's sneezing. In, uh, I'm sorry. In New Haven sneezing is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello. How are you guys doing? I'm fine. Is that a ficus tree behind you, Emily? Or is that indeed a, a potted is. plant? It's a potted I'm, plant. She's not a potted plant. No. What a gardener <laughs> no, you are. are. Just for our listeners to to imagine what we're looking at, we're looking at a computer here with Emily on it. She's standing, and behind her, over her left shoulder, is a ficus tree. She's now gesturing she's as now though gesturing she were on Vanna White. Vanna White, yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so that's what uh, that's what the vibe is here. On this week's GabFest, the upheaval in Baltimore following the death of Freddie Gray in police custody, we will have Ta-Nehisi Coates of the Atlantic in to talk about that. Is anything going to change after yet another death of a black man at the hands of the police? Then a big week at the Supreme Court, arguments about marriage equality and the death penalty. So that means Emily Bazelon is ultra prepared. And then Elizabeth Warren versus Hillary Clinton versus... Bernie Sanders versus uh, the Clinton Foundation versus Canadian mining billionaires. Uh, we will talk about <laughs> the, huge... the week the week in democratic politics. What were you going to say, John? No, I was going to say I was just imagining all of those people in a like cage welded shut with uh, hmm. some kind of like weapons that weren't actually too vicious. Like they would all meditate, John. I'm sure yeah. it would be the very Canadian mining billionaires would definitely He would be it. yeah, he would be ruthless. Then we will have cocktail chatter, of course, and in Slate Plus, we will answer some listener questions, which we will determine when we get to the Slate Plus segment. Can I just say hello to Joy, who um, said hello when we were uh, in Washington, Joy, the librarian who was in town for a um, for something. She's a loyal listener of the show. She said to say hello to you guys. Oh. She stopped hello, and said Joy. hello. And so it was, uh, it was really – she's lo- really lovely. So I thought I'd give her a shout-out on Hi, the Joy. show. On Monday night – there was upheaval in the city of Baltimore as demonstrations associated with the, or following, I guess, the funeral of Freddie Gray turned 
violent. There was burning of buildings. The mayor and the governor brought in huge public security presence into the streets of the city, imposed a curfew. By Tuesday night, the city had reached a state of relative calm. But the fact remains that Gray's death while in police custody is a mystery. A healthy man paralyzed and then killed after a brief period under the care of the police. Uh, we don't know what happened, why it happened, how it happened, where culpability for his death lies. We've had death after death of black males uh, at the hands of the police. We had, of course, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Walter Scott. I think I'm missing one. Now one prominent case and now Gray. And it just continues. And so obviously we want to talk about this week. And we have the person who I think we all want to hear from most on this, which is Ta-Nehisi Coates, who's a native Baltimorean. He's a national – what did you say your title was, Ta-Nehisi? National correspondent. correspondent. For the Atlantic. Correspondent, yes. Correspondent. Um, grew up in the neighborhood where the violence and the protests were this week and has written very brilliantly. I just want to start by reading – one paragraph from a, an essay he wrote in The Atlantic this week. When nonviolence is preached as an attempt to evade the repercussions of police brutality, it betrays itself when nonviolence begins halfway through the war with the aggressor calling time out. It exposes itself as a ruse when nonviolence is preached by the representatives of the state while the state doles out heaps of violence to its citizen, it reveals itself to be a con. So, Tanahasi, we've had a, a week almost to think about what's happened in Baltimore after the spasm of violence and then the crackdown and then the continued discussion, what, where do you sit after five days of this? Uh, probably uh, pretty much where I sat five days before it. Um, I think one of the um, you know, unfortunate things about the business that we work in is, you know, it, it's necessarily tied to big, spectacular uh, events. And, and the, the events on Monday night were, you know, those sort of, of that variety and of that nature. But um, for, for those of us who grew up, you know, in the vicinity of Montgomery Mall, uh, for those of us who have parents, like I do, uh, my mom grew up in Gilmore Homes, uh, where Freddie Gray was from. This is not particularly new. What you have to do is you have to include uh, uh, the violence of police towards African-Americans, uh, within the entire, you know, scope of, of actual violence that African Americans and particularly young African Americans endure. Well, one of the things I really try to, you know, get across when I'm talking about this is, is the the, um, the ways in which violence, you know, shapes young young black lives in general is incomprehensible to most people. It always amazed me when I hear discussions about school and school reform, and it does not, you know, come up just how much, you know, the average, you know, a young black student who's living in the inner city thinks about violence on, on, on a daily basis. It is a tremendous, tremendous amount. I speak that from personal uh, experience, and that is not separate uh, from the violence of, of police officers. The violence of police officers, you know, uh, towards African-Americans uh, is particularly horrific because you go to the state to protect you, and you find the state not acting, you know, not uh, like a guardian, but acting like any other force that you see out on the street. But at the same time, it's sort of, you know, everyday violence that African-Americans endure, which seems often to be, you know, dealt out at the hands of people whom we live around, our neighbors, you know, that term black-on-black crime, is in fact also the result of policy that, that were passed. And so, you know, I, I see it as a, of a piece. The, the story, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't, doesn't begin Monday night. Is it the opposite, then? Is it, you're, were you, you know, could you argue you're surprised it didn't happen sooner? No. Um, I mean, you never know when, you know, a, a particular reaction is, is going to be, you know, felt or how people are going to be right. I, I just, I'm just not surprised. It, it just doesn't. I mean, specifically, just let's just focus zero in on Freddie Gray. So use all of the stuff I said about violence and, 
think about the deprivation and, and all of that as background. I think I was reading something recently. It said that the area where this, where this popped off uh, in Winchester, uh, it has the highest incarceration rate in the state. Okay, so that's, that's a consistently intense, violent relationship with the state because that's what, you know, prison is. You know, it is, it is violence. And people come home and they bring that back. I mean, you know, they talk about that and then you go in and, and that becomes part of the cycle. But let's just lay that as the backdrop. They arrest this guy. And we don't know what they arrested him for. It looks like he made the mistake of making eye contact with a police officer and then ran. They didn't find drugs on him or anything like that. I found a switchblade on him. And he was arrested. If he wanted to come here, have no idea what crime he actually committed. And then he died. He's in state custody, and then he died. And the people who are allegedly responsible uh, or held accountable by the people in that neighborhood, the people who, you know, the, uh, the police, who, you know, Maryland State authorities claim serve and protect the people that live in that neighborhood. In fact, the police have given no, you know, account for how this guy ended up with his spine 80% severed. That is incredible. You don't know why the state took him to begin with. And you don't know how the state, you know, how he managed to die in the state's care. And so if they arrested Freddie Gray in that sort of way, you have to assume that that's not abnormal. They would probably say that that's a, a, a procedure for fighting, you know, drug, you know, against drugs or drug deals or drug use or, or whatever. But you have to think about how many, you know, young African-Americans who found themselves in that very same situation, not really clear on what they got arrested for. Maybe not dying. I mean, this is like the, 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 the superlative of it. But the uh, police are clearly just not accounting what all to the people who live in that neighborhood. And if you continue that over a period of time, the idea that the reaction to that consistently is going to be nonviolent is absurd. I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely absurd. We can go back and forth about, you know, whether, you know, protests should be nonviolent or not. You know, just like, you know, we can go back and forth about whether they should be global warming or not. But if you pump, you know, enough CO2 in the atmosphere, certain things are going to happen. You know, and if you heap violence, if violence is the way that you respond, you know, when folks have drug issues, employment issues, you know, issues that we normally deal with through the social safety net, uh, mental health issues, if you respond with violence, well, at some point the community is going to respond violently too. It seems like the dynamic here is pathologized that this, you know, reading up on the history of Baltimore a little bit, there have been decades of policies that were pro-segregation. Then there was the drug war, which has affected deeply the relationship between the police and the community. From the outside, it feels intractable in this very frustrating way when you read about endemic, particularly urban poverty in this country. It goes back generations. It seemed like there are so many policy reasons for it that are deeply embedded. And then also, you know, Baltimore has African-American leadership right now. So that simple fact is not enough to change things. Um, and I guess it I don't want to feel like it's intractable because it's such an important problem to address. Um, what do you feel like community leaders are coming up with in terms of moving forward? Because they've been out in force. Well, I don't know what they're, what they're coming up with, but I'll just say two things. It's certainly nine. So, I mean, let's just, again, let's take the very specific Freddie Gray incident. One of the reasons why we don't know what actually happened is because there's something called a law enforcement officer's bill of rights, which means that folks get, like, this 10-day cooling off period, don't necessarily have to answer questions. It's a, 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 an absurd, you know, range of, of, of um, you know, I'm hesitating even to call them rights, but just an absurd, an absurd range of protections for people that you give maximum power to you know, to go out and kill people. That, that was a policy that was actually passed. You know what I mean? And, you know, I was reading up on this yesterday. It was a policy that was passed directly in, in response to civil rights movement protests against police brutality in the early 1970s. We don't have to have that policy. 
We don't have to have that policy, you know, uh, but we do. Uh, it, it is only intractable as far as I'm concerned. You're right, and I, I, you know, I'm not so much disagreeing with you. I mean, it's only intractable in the sense there are, you know, a, a web of policies that, that have led us here. But I, I don't think it's impossible to undo them. I think it would take a great deal of patience. I think it would take a great deal of time. And as always, as I've said before and I'll keep saying, you know, I think it would take reparations. I think that would have to be part of it. But I don't think it's impossible. Tanahasi, I want to go back to something you started with, which is the violence that that African-Americans face every day. One of the things that's been striking about what's happened in the United States over the past 20 years, it's been an enormous drop in, certainly in murder, but in violent crime generally. And so your risk of being killed if you're a if you're somebody living in, in any American city, is much lower than it used to be. And I think if you're privileged and rich, this has been a particularly great thing. You feel like, oh, the city is is great, it's perfect, it's all good. Talk about the kind of contradiction or the, the balance between the fact that violence is actually in decline by many measures with the fact that if you are poor and African-American or poor and in urban poverty, that conditions are not really any particularly better than they used to be. Well, the first thing is, and and I I just want to, like, being killed is like the worst thing that could possibly happen, right? But there's there's a whole, you know, range of violent things that happen to you, you know, along the way. This this recent wave of, like, uh, police violence that we're now paying attention to, for the most part, with a couple of exceptions, involves lethal violence. Today, you know, you're not seeing the reports, for instance, off camera, where an officer just, you know, threatens you, for instance. Um, or officer, you know, just punches you off camera. You know, like like a whole range of things where you're stopped and harassed for no reason. They just, you know, won't show up in the data. And, and it's very much the same way uh, in terms of being an African-American. I, you know, listen, when I went to middle school, I, I can't count the incidents that I endured that you would now call assault and battery. I don't think uh, we went to the police one time. So you're talking about over the course of, I was in there seventh and eighth grade, over the course of two years. That, that was just part of life. I mean, the term we use in Baltimore is like, getting banked, which meant that, you know, some three, four or five or more people jumped on you, you know, and just just beat you up, you know, just beat the hell out of you, right? That happened to everybody I knew. Nobody went to the police. Nobody went to the police. And they, and they weren't, you know, wrong for, you know, you know, they didn't go to the police because the police couldn't really stop what was actually happening and the reasons why that was actually happening. And I assure you, that is very, very much present, you know, in, in, in the lives of young African-Americans today. And, and when you live like that, when you, when you live in, in a space where violence is, is constant, you assume a kind of posture. And it's very interesting to me, you know, this, this, this language we use about what's violent and what's not. There's a, a video, and I'm sure you guys have probably seen it by now, and there's a mother who comes across her, her son at one of the protests. He's about right. to throw a rock, or he just had thrown a rock. And she starts, like, just beating the hell out of him. You know what I mean? And cursing at him, calling him all sorts of things. You know, I, I understand that. You know, my mom, who I talked to about this, probably would have had the same response. But I watched how, you know, this behavior was celebrated and how, you know, the woman ended up on, you know, the morning shows and in all the newspapers and, you know, people, you know, basically saying that this is what, you know, parenthood should be. We need more parents like that. But I know, you know, living in New York, if I was riding on the Q train and I saw and somebody saw these same people, a mother like that, cursing at her child, smacking her child and assaulting it, they would call that, that, that would be horrifying. That's right. They would find that absolutely horrifying, you know, um, but I, I think it just, you know, goes to show that under some circumstances, we're okay with the violence or the lives of these young black kids endure. And in other cases, you know, we just sort of turn away. And in other cases, we apologize and, you know, make it a case about them and, you know, their sort of, of cultural problems. 
But it, it, it's, it's very, very real there. I mean, if you look at the chasm in terms of, even if you just use mean, rough statistics about how violent life is for African Americans now, even with the drop compared to, you know, other groups, it's just, it's not even close. It's not even close. Donna, I see. I talked to Elijah, Elijah Cummings, who represents this district, and um, and you know one of the things he talked about in addition in addition to that kind of what you're describing is kind of being encased in violence in the day to day. What he what he was talking about also is when you are in a community where and he talked about the um, the Orioles Stadium and the fact that he said you know none of those kids who live in the neighborhood around it have ever been into that stadium, and mm-hmm, so for them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the stadium is a monument of all that they cannot have. And that that what they are also encased in is the privilege of everybody else and, you know, people who didn't grow up in homes where there's enough lead to poison you, whose mothers, um, you know, Freddie Gray's mom was uh, addicted, I think, at some point to heroin. Um, and his point was that that adds to the weight here, too. It's not just the weight of the police who are always on you or the violence that's always a part of your life, but there is a... There's a whole other thing, a whole other bunch of weight that's on you, that you see it in the stadium, you see it in life where there are these incredible disparities. So that part of it that the congressman was talking about doesn't have anything really to do with the relationship with the police, but he thought it was very much a part of the story, too. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I actually think even the things that we think are about police are actually not in fact about the police. Again, I mean, I'm pretty sure that if you, you know, if you did, you know, the math, on why, you know, Freddie Gray was arrested uh, to begin with, you will end up uh, in a conversation about drug policy. And I say that to say that, you know, we have, regrettably, a tradition in this country, a very, very long tradition uh, of addressing the problems of African-Americans, the problems that we see in African-American uh, communities through criminal justice. And, and that's been the case with a, with a, a large number of these shootings. And so behind uh, the, the shooting of Walter Scott, which looks so brutal, I mean, clearly that officer had lost his mind to shoot somebody in the back like that. But you always have to go back. So why was Freddie Gray running? Well, you know, it's probably a conversation to be had there about our policy in terms of child support. There was a young man down in Atlanta who was killed recently. He was, he was butt naked, shot by the police, butt naked. You know, clearly didn't have any weapon on him. Well, why was he shot down? Well, the police were called. Turned out he was having some sort of mental health issue. There's probably a way of looking at, you know, the, the killing of Tamir Rice. As brutal as that looks when you look on camera and having a conversation about resources available, you know, in terms of, you know, making sure that kids are occupied and that sort of thing. So I strongly suspect that the police are just like, that's where the confrontation happens. That's the flashpoint. That's when, you know, everybody, you know, sort of wakes up and pays attention. But I think it's very, very important for people to dial it back, you know, and say, okay, but how did we even end up in this place to, to begin with? You know, it, it is as if you were writing a history of World War II, and it begins with the D-Day landing or something like that, which some histories do. But <laughs> that's, that's like how you're, you know, how, how we're looking at it. I mean, that, that, that's our perspective on all of this. And so even like terms like police reform, I think are, are, are inappropriate. It is much bigger. You know, police go where we send the police to go. Right. So they're like the tool of implementation of this system right. that we've implemented, right, in these cities and towns. And then mm-hmm. they're all the people on the receiving end and they're on that receiving end for all these like underlying reasons. But in fact, right. the way the police treat them is like one more manifestation of the disparity. But don't yeah. you guys yeah. think that the way this all of this is unfolding in the discussion, the discussion is really around the police, the police's relationship to violence the police's relationship to violence towards black men and that it really it's it ha, it is even in the discussion around baltimore it has remained focused around that it is we have we've kept 
everyone is keeping the focus on this question of the police and their relationship to African-American citizens. And it isn't there isn't a larger lens that people are able to examine it with. How could well, we get we to a larger, of the larger lens? Well, aren't we scared of the larger Because a larger lens means redistribution of wealth. Like it means really addressing inequality and the, you know, lack of opportunity in some neighborhoods and cities because they've been kind of walled off. So the the cops are a hard enough problem. Well, and there's other ways to open the lens too. I mean, there when Rand Paul says it's about the fathers, that's opening that's opening the lens. It's just opening it in a different way than what you're suggesting, Emily, which is redistribution of wealth. I mean, there are people who are searching for larger, you know, issues here. It's just um, that gets you but, pretty but quickly. The, but the, the first answer that you hear, and Hillary Clinton, I think, in her speech was more expansive than just this. But again, the the headline from it is body cameras or mass incarceration. Well, mass incarceration, but body cameras and mass incarceration. Yeah. Well, or wait a second, maybe mass incarceration wasn't such a good idea. I mean, we are hearing right. that from no, the anti-mass incarceration. Yeah, not yeah, pro. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, no, good, good. Yeah, yeah. No, no, she wasn't saying. No, she was saying the opposite. But that's kind of probably where we are now. That's where we are. You know, the conversation will start to get bigger, but then, then it'll get diffuse. And I just, just really quickly, I, I feel like it would behoove me to just comment on that that, that Rand Paul piece. Uh, God, where to start? I'm laughing about the train. I mean, this is just like repugnant. I mean, just, and Rand Paul is getting like a lot of credit, you know, for quote unquote. If this is the outreach, if, that, if that's the outreach, oh my God. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't like, like, he's like, got like, a ways to go it. on that train. I mean, I mean, that, that is incredible. That, that, that just, that just is incredible. And see, like, when you hear somebody like, like, make light of that in that sort of way and then follow it with the fathers. You know, listen, hey, I'm a fan of fathers. I had a father. I wrote a book. You know, this was, was the, the subtitle of the book is Two Boys, One Father, and the Unlikely Road to Man. I, you know, I'm, I'm for fatherhood. I'm in the fatherhood. You know, I think, it, you know, it'd be a great world if there were more fathers present in the lives of, of, of African-American men. But see, even that, it, it, you know, African-Americans, but see, even that takes you back to a policy question. Because you have to ask, but why? Why not? Why, why, why aren't there more fathers around? What, what, what's actually happening there? You know, it ultimately, you know, becomes some sort of policy. When you hear a guy laughing about, you know, the train not stopping, which it probably did, but laughing about the train not stopping, and then, you know, sort of blithely hand-waving, you know, at fault, that, that's, it just, it, it's not a serious discussion. I think the father thing is a real thing. I think the same African-American families is a real thing. You know, I don't know how that, you know, gets us away from policy, though. If you guys had to bet, just last question, in a year when we're in the full heat of the presidential campaign, will either these kind of police violence questions or the larger questions of poverty in cities, will either of those be actual campaign issues that anyone will be paying any no, attention to? No, no, no. I mean, I think there'll be something about in the platform specifically. Like, it's very popular to be against mass incarceration right now. So I think there'll be something in the platforms about that. Um, but this this will not be a decisive issue at, at all. I, I just don't think. I I would agree with that. I, the um, you know they talk about poverty. Um, the candidates do on both sides, but you never you never go to an event in East Des Moines, right? You always go to the West Des Moines. 
because you don't want to go to East Des Moines where, you know, it's there are no vote. No people are going to vote for. And in this case, it's mostly for the Republican candidates. But Hillary Clinton's not going to East Des Moines either. So, Is East Des Moines where the poor people live in Des Moines yeah, for us yeah, non the place you, Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's the place where you can go and cover politics for 20 years and never go into that part of. And it's not very far. You don't have to like all you got to do is point your car and drive a couple of miles. Um, what's even more striking this time around is it's not just the normal drive by. You remember in 2008, we had a Democratic primary in which John Edwards talked about poverty. The other two candidates talked about poverty as long as he made it an issue and then he dropped out of the race and you never heard about it again. So you do hear people mention uh, the poor in their speeches, Rand Paul, Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush. But they don't, you know, that's, it's just a line in a speech. Nobody's going, nobody's doing, the way you show attention to an issue in a speech, I'm sorry, in a campaign, is you do it over and over and over again. You know, you show up at those places, you get seen photographed in those places. That just isn't happening. You know, there's something, sometimes in this conversation, I feel like America's made this bargain with itself. We're going to have really desperate rank poverty in return for what we see as more opportunity. Like that's the political trade-off for not having a sufficient safety net. So that's upsetting enough in itself. But I also get worried that we are more and more separate from people who are different from ourselves. Like that the the ease with which you can never cross over to the East Des Moines of wherever you happen to live only grows. And that that actually means that, okay, so episodically a video like this one of Freddie Gray surfaces and it's hugely upsetting and we pay attention for a moment, but then there isn't enough real sustained momentum for a form because of division. I feel dangerously unequipped to answer that question. Um, it's not really what, answerable. <laughs> no, well, I think one of the things is very difficult for me to understand, like what the, the psychology is, like the mass psychology is. I do think the focus on the individual. Uh, in America, it makes it very, very hard for people to understand like what, what's happening. So, you know, if you can look at Barack Obama and say, "Well, he made it. Why can't you?" Like that shows it's possible, and as long as it's possible, everything's okay. It does not matter that effectively it is impossible. You know what I mean? That like you know, it's possible for the individual, but it's actually not possible for most people. I think that's like really, really hard. It, it, it like constricts us. Like you can't really have a conversation about racism or about white supremacy without people feeling like you're saying you individually are a bad person, you individually are a bad human being, or you individually, you know, your grandfather was a bad human being or, or, or something like that. I mean, it's the reason why anytime this stuff comes up, you know, you get a Clive and Bunny, the person says, well, Clive is a great guy. Clive is a great father. <laughs> you know, um, it, it's very hard for people to see systems at work and then policies actually at work that, you know, do not much care about whether you're a great person or, or not. Tanahasi Coates is national correspondent for the Atlantic. Tanahasi, thanks so much. Come back uh, anytime, and we'll talk. Thank to you. Soon. Thanks for having me, guys. The GapFest is sponsored this week by Stamps.com. A lot of small businesses get stuck doing things the old way, just out of habit, including vital operations like mailing and shipping, which can be so time-consuming. If you are still making trips to the post office, you need Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can do all your mailing and shipping right from your desk and never go to the post office again. With Stamps.com, you can, of course, print postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer, then hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It is convenient and easy to use, and it'll save you money, and you will get special postage discounts you can't even get at the post office. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST for a special offer, a no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer. It includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. 
Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GabFest. That's stamps.com. Enter GabFest. I think if anyone ever had a bonus offer that was not $110, I would be confused. The stamps.com bonus offer, that to me seems that's what a bonus offer is. It's $110. If there were a $100 bonus <laughs> offer, $120, I just couldn't. You would be undone. Cognitively dissonant. Lost. There were two huge cases at the Supreme Court this week, argued at the Supreme Court this week. Marriage equality, lethal injection, much anticipated. Emily Bazelon, go. Do it one by one. So did the marriage equality equality argument unfold as you predicted, as we've talked about? We've we've talked about that case a lot, but did did the arguments actually take the form that you expected them to take? Form of an eagle. Pretty much. (laughs) Form of Justice Kennedy and and Chief Justice Roberts. Forming a lifelong partnership. (laughs) Form of a wedding. Um, Because it's America. I would say there were two (laughs) kind of surprises. A surprise a little strong. So Justice Kennedy was in more of a kind of hand-wringing mood than marriage equality proponents really wanted to hear. He was worried about changing the definition after many millennia kind of started going on about that, which, of course, other conservative justices picked up on. I don't really take this to be a bad sign for legalizing same-sex marriage. I think he likes to agonize a little bit out loud. And it just doesn't seem in the end like an argument that has very much to it, especially constitutionally speaking, the fact that we have done that the institution of marriage has looked one way for a long time and now could be expanded. Seems like an argument that is kind of so what? Isn't it also true? Wait, but Just, w- go ahead. Well, I would have said, actually, I was going to say one thing. I'm usually kind of a Hayekian conservative in a lot of things, but the institution of marriage has not been static right. for millennia. We've had polygamy. Well, that's, well, that's different look- than that's different than Emily's point. I mean, because I thought Emily was going to say say this is an institution that's changed a lot and therefore it's not as ironclad and and fixed as some would claim. Right. I mean, I think if it had truly been monolithically one way for millennia, then I suppose that might be a slightly stronger argument. I would still argue that just because something has been one way for a long time doesn't mean that evolving notions of equality can't change it. But yeah, David, of course you're right. I mean, we had, you know, a norm of polygamous marriage for, I'm sure, millennia. And in, We've in had many norms of still. subjugation of women forms of marriage for a long time and have hopefully left those behind. I mean, there are many other forms of marriage that we have, that have bit the dust before for now. But but I guess what I find strange about this is the idea that there's any threat in this change, other than just the notion somehow that when you rewrite a definition culturally and socially as well as legally, there's something destabilizing about that. Well, that's not a that's not a small thing for those people who believe it. Well, it would be one thing if the except that we have a decade's worth of evidence now from states. Well, we don't have a decade's worth of evidence from a lot of states, but in Massachusetts, where we have had same-sex marriage for twelve years, there has not been some sort of bad change or collapse to marriage as an institution. So the notion that this is threatening, I just feel like it's more of a theoretical point than a real point. Well, go ahead, John. Well, I was going to say that's what's interesting uh, to me. I mean, obviously there is the and it would be great to keep the lines really sharp on this because I don't know what they are and would like to. Um, there is the cultural threat this poses to people and the what beliefs they've had their whole lives. I mean, 
you may remember that the sitting president once held this belief too, and so did the entire Democratic Party. So the, as David quite rightly pointed out in previous episode, the pace of change here means people who might even one day get to the position of supporting same-sex marriage are going – it's happening kind of fast. And so it's not crazy for people to be a little at sea. And that's all interesting and cultural. But the question is, what does any of that have to do with the Constitution? So um, there's a, there's also a larger group for whom this is destabilizing – not in terms of facts that can be measured, but in terms of, you know, if they have a belief system and this threatens their belief system, that belief system isn't just about marriage. It's about their entire lives. Now, whether a constitution or a Supreme Court has to take any of that into account, I don't know. But that fact does exist. There are those people who do. There are lots of them out there. Emily, what did you make of the conservative, the, the opponents of marriage equality or the, I guess now at this point we say the proponents of state decisions about marriage equality, their decision to tie themselves to the mast of procreation. I think this again, like this is kind of all they have left. And so this is where they've decided to land. Sometimes, you know, when we're talking about these issues, I feel like what we're really talking about is the Bible that actually millennia invoked by Kennedy and Scalia and others really just stands for the Bible. And that's what we're talking about are people's religious ideas and all the conventions and tradition John just had in mind. Bible, polygamy, widespread in the Bible. Just want to point that out. But can somebody explain the, for our listeners what you mean by the procreation argument? The argument that straight marriage is different because it is bound up in this idea. Procreation, the state has a huge interest in defending, protecting, guarding the rights of people who procreate and that if you allow non-procreators into this institution, you weaken this institution, make it less likely that children will be born, children will be raised right, the marriage as a as an institution to protect children will weaken. It seems like totally preposterous. There is not a single shred of evidence for it. And plus, lots of gay couples are adopting people. So what the hell? <laughs> and also, this is in the end, that fact that you just pointed out is what is going to move Justice Kennedy to write a pro-marriage equality decision because the thing he speaks of with the most passion at these arguments are the children of gay couples. He is concerned about them and the effect of leaving their families out of this institution. And it seems like in the end that is one of the most compelling salient factors here and it is going to carry the day. There is this other little interesting sliver of argument going on from Chief Justice Roberts who invoked the idea that you could think of same-sex marriage as necessary for addressing gender discrimination as opposed to discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. So, you know, this idea is that, like, if Tom can marry Alice and Barbara can't marry Alice, then Barbara is being discriminated against on the basis of her sex, not whether she's heterosexual or homosexual. And Robert seemed kind of interested in that. It's like that this seems sort like of, such a debater's I know. Argument. It's like, it it's like uh, first, yes. imagine a can opener. I mean, it's just it's. It's a little beside the point, and yet, okay, so welcome aboard. If that makes him the sixth vote, well, but then more power but, to him. But you wouldn't want a decision that was based on that, yeah, because that, would, no. that lowers the sort of support for sexual orientation as a class of – as a category of, of – Yeah, if that becomes the basis for the whole decision, it will seem both like weird and out of left field and also very unfortunate. But if it gets Chief Justice Roberts on board on some little concurrence boat of his own, okay, fine. It's like when the, uh, the decision on the Affordable Care Act, the definition of tax, when that seemed 
an implausible thing to hang so much and yet, argumentation on. And yet, that was on. what Roberts picked up on. Totally. So. No, I know. But I guess the point we've talked about this before is if you, if it's not done in a way that puts down roots, then now in this case, social change is moving. So maybe you could argue social change is on the way. This is all happening. Who cares if the roots are deep because the force of change is happening and it will create roots and the roots are being created by personal behavior. So whatever, the court's just kind of getting itself out of a pickle here. But the weaker, if there's a weak rationale, you know, people don't feel like uh, it gives it a kind of staying power. Right. I think that's true. It would feel like some sort of weird legal fig leaf. I mean, the question of staying power and deep roots is still... I think, the most respectable position against a big Supreme Court opinion for 50 states, that position would be we're better off letting this go state by state. We're going to get there in five to 10 years anyway. Justice Scalia and Justice Alito will stop freaking out if the results are arrived at democratically and there won't be a backlash. You know, I think that argument has real purchase to it. I I have been myself relieved at the um, relative lack of backlash in the what are we up to now? We're between 36 and 37 states with same sex marriage, depending on whether you count Alabama, where there was a backlash. So um, I'm not feeling as concerned about that possibility as I was even just a year or two ago. Right. It would be so nice if there were just somehow we managed to get, you know, a whole bunch of things on the ballot this year and people could vote for it. It's it's a little it's a little bit of a bummer that this change is going to come because of judges and not because of voters. I guess so, but we got here the exact same way with Loving versus Virginia, right? There were essentially 14 or 15 states that were still banning interracial marriage. The court scrapped those statutes and everyone moved on. Yeah, but had and had interracial marriage previously been banned by judges in the other 35 states or had no, it's done true legislatively? that it came across more in terms of legislatures. Abandoned. I mean, we've them. only had what is it, you know, maybe a handful of states that have actively legislatively or through or through popular vote legalized marriage equality. And right, would be right. Nice and in all fair to the gay rights movement, they were very much moving in the direction of ballot initiatives before Windsor, the Supreme Court's decision in 2013 about same-sex marriage. This has been like a tidal wave brought on by the federal judges who have been rushing to prove themselves progressive, you know, for good reason. But then it also means that you don't even have time for right. the democratic process. They all, to, they all looked back to the federal judges of the 60s and thought, what can I be on? What can I do that will get my Well, plus they're, an- they're answering to their children and grandchildren or looking at them thinking like, are you really going to be the Neanderthal who says that these nice people standing in front of you can't get married. Did you guys hear the great um, This American Life segment this week about it was about changing people's minds about marriage equality? That there's an it's incredibly effective to send a gay person to someone's door to talk about marriage equality and talk about their own experience and just have a conversation. If you just if you just have a conversation with a gay person who talks about their life and their experience with marriage equality or their experience with marriage or an ability to have access to marriage, that causes an enormous shift, just that alone. So that was an insight from when Maryland and Washington State, and there's a third state, when oh, Maine, those were the states that were having ballot initiatives um, a few years ago. And they did a lot of testing about which arguments worked the most. And they found that these kind of personal narratives were very effective. And I, you know, I think, look, they are responsible for changing lots of people's minds. But it's interesting that you raise that because that is the 
what is it? There's a mathematical term, I'm sure. But that proves why it's so dangerous that we all go live in our siloed, self-selecting lives on all kinds of other issues. Right. Because we never come right. in conflict with people who are different, who can remind us of our common humanity and then have a discussion about whatever thing it is that we don't disagree so, so they, about. So someone is now testing this with abortion to see whether if you take someone who's had an abortion and go to people who are opposed to abortion and you have them present their life experience, mm -hmm. does it cause a shift in their beliefs? Huh. And it seems Oh, I, I'm so curious about the outcome of that. Huh. Um, but I think I suspect these all these are wonder, all these all work for kind of liberty, human dignity issues and probably it doesn't work for Tax cuts. Tax policy or something, right. I don't know. We'll see. Emily, let's move on just quickly to the lethal injection case. The other case uh, was about the use of certain kinds of drugs in lethal injection in Oklahoma, drugs that I guess are also used in other states, and whether whether these drugs are, are kind of effective, whether these people being executed are being executed with the proper humanity. You know, I truthfully, I didn't quite understand the legal issues in this case. So this is this weird standoff we're having where in 2008, the court said lethal injection was constitutional at a moment when the states were using essentially a three drug cocktail that everyone bought into. It had uh, what's it called? Penobarbital in it. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, which seems clearly to make the pain go away before the actual drugs that kill you and really cause enormous pain go into effect. And then the abolitionists were successful in pressuring the companies that sell these drugs to stop selling them to the states who are using them to kill with. The drugs are in Europe. The, the companies are in Europe. They don't want to have the trouble. And now we're in this strange position in which the abolitionist position has essentially made the death penalty more barbaric in hopes of exposing it as, you know, grotesque to its core so that the Supreme Court or some states will make it illegal. And there's a lot of discomfort going on, both as we – I mean, a few of these executions have been truly horrifying to witness or hear about. So in that sense, it's raising consciousness. But the Supreme Court, certainly the five conservatives on the court, including Justice Kennedy, did not seem to have a lot of patience for this kind of backdoor way of delegitimizing the death penalty and essentially – some of the conservative justices kind of called out the death penalty opponents for making the death penalty worse and harder to administer. And I think in the end, the notion that there are going to be five votes for curtailing the death penalty in this circumstance seems unlikely. Although the particular drug that is um, so contested right now, which I'm sure I will pronounce wrong again, but I think it's midazolam, it really seems awful. And so the idea that the states are going to continue to use it is – just sort of unspeakably horrible. And yet the court did not seem to have a lot of stomach for making the states do something different given the circumstances. So I, I feel like there are going to be some middle ground there, but I couldn't quite tell what it was going to be after listening to the didn't, argument. Um, Oklahoma, one of the states using that drug, didn't they this week also legalize nitrogen asphyxi asphyxiation as a method of execution? And another state, maybe Utah, brought back the firing squad, both of which I think people believe are relatively more humane methods of execution. Nitrogen right. asphyxiation, for sure. And there's so many easy ways to – I mean, there's so many ways to kill people that are painless. Just give right. them a this huge dose of heroin. This is the problem with this whole line of ending the death penalty is that you're merely – 
prompting the states to become more creative. And if you are thinking of trying to of diminishing pain, if that's the measure of cruel and unusual punishment, then there are technical remedies to that. And that's another reason why I think this is, you know, perhaps from an abolitionist perspective, it's useful for the light that it shines. And certainly it has coincided with moratoria on the death penalty in a bunch of states. But in the end, it's not going to be the thing that um, ends the death penalty in America. All right. Let's hear from our next sponsor. The podcast today is brought to you by the University of California, committed to advancing our world through discovery. Research at the University of California led to more than 1,700 new inventions last year, an average of nearly five a day. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. The University of California, the power of public. Now for today's featured research. Tales of Silicon Valley sexism are making frequent headlines this year. Some headlines made by Emily Bazelon herself, from reports of programmers behaving badly to a gender discrimination lawsuit against venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins. But behind the headlines is a more systemic problem of unconscious gender bias that impacts women, entrepreneurs, and every industry. Typically cited factors for the gender gap range from differences in work experience to social ties. But UC Santa Barbara sociologist Sarah Thibault recently discovered new evidence pointing to a more insidious source, modern-day sexism. To read the story... Uncover more groundbreaking innovations by the University of California. Visit slate.com slash breakthroughs. There is a book coming out this week called Clinton Cash by a conservative journalist type named Peter Schweitzer. It makes a case. It doesn't make a smoking gun kind of case about the Clintons. But it does say that the way that the Clintons, Hillary and Bill, and to a certain extent Chelsea, have collected money for themselves and for their foundation over the last uh, 14 years since they've been since the president was out of office, combined with the responsibilities that Hillary Clinton had as Secretary of State, deserve to be looked at more closely. They don't have sleazy? a sleazy. How about the word there's sleazy? Not, there's not a particular quid pro quo that the author can point to, but there's a lot of just kind of yuckiness with big donors to to the Clinton Foundation being people who then get some, may end up getting some benefit out of the State Department with foreign governments, with the Clinton Foundation accepting money from foreign governments that it probably shouldn't have accepted given its own strictures. And like Russian the, and uranium also, oligarchs. Well, and also big money being paid f- to Bill Clinton for big for speeches for, he gave, where his, his speaking fees improved uh, after she became... Secretary of State. And while we've had presidents, President Reagan received, I think, $2 million for two speeches in Japan after he was president. The difference between that is that, you know, Nancy Reagan was not Secretary of State. I'm stealing that analogy from Mark Shields. But that's also part of the the questions here. And I think it's a problem. I, I don't know. I, I don't I don't really have a question here. I think it's a problem for Hillary because she is running because she's a Democrat. She's running in a more populist vein in a more redistributionist vein than the Republicans are. The Republican, all the Republican candidates have huge ties to rich people who are and are doing policy favors for them or will do policy favors for them if they hold office. The Co- you can know that the Koch brothers' agenda is going to generally get advanced. Uh, their agenda of less regulation, you know, more more freedom for energy interests is, is generally going to get advanced if these Republican presidential candidates are elected. But there is something it just looks ugly well, with what Hillary is doing. And they, they, they become such a bunch of very, very rich people and hanging with very rich people. And I don't I don't I can't articulate anything right now. I'm not sure why. Well, we, go ahead, John. Well, you know, we, we've we debated before the 
role of big money and whether there's a quid pro quo and there never there never really is i mean if you if there's a quid pro quo somebody's been really sloppy whether it's on the right or the left when they give these vast amounts of money but here's a David Plotzian type question. Let's assume the worst on both sides. So on the right, you have the Koch brothers giving, you know, planning to give close to a billion dollars. And it's essentially not so they can they can get a specific power plant uh, or some energy product approved by the government, but because they believe a, a set of ideas. It's a fl- ideology and a philosophy. So is it worse for a candidate to be influenced by money that supports an ideology, which is to say a whole raft of programs that you would try to implement or that they would pick you because you are going to implement them because you share their ideology. Is that worse than uh, the Hillary Clinton event, which is somebody gives you lots and lots and lots of money so they can have their specific thing, their mining claim approved or their company allowed to uranium obviously is important here because it has a, a nuclear and a weapons capability, which required which is why it needed the, the State Department approval, State Department, along with other agencies. So which is worse, money given in furtherance of an ideology or money given in the furtherance of, of personal enrichment? Right. Well, and, or is it does it not matter because in both cases you're buying off politicians and that's not not right. Good so, at all. so the so the argument would be let's say Scott Walker ends up getting just gazillions and gazillions of dollars of coke money. Scott Walker is not his his actual views are not being shaped by the cokes. He already believes this thing that they share an ideology. The cokes are supporting it. And they, the cokes are not asking for for particular favor right. from Although Walker on they any may pre- on thing. They may wait. Let's just hold on, hold on. They, they're not asking for particular favor. They just know that he is a, he is so ideologically sympathetic that when it comes to making a decision, it's very likely it's going to go in their favor because he has the same belief system they do. Whereas with the Clinton, the money is being used to induce, presumably induce the State Department or induce Bill Clinton to lobby for things that they don't actually believe on principle. That they are opposed to, and but they're small favors, as opposed to big ideological favors. So you think that you get less for your money, but you get it from people who would be less inclined to give it to you in the first place. No, no, if we were just trying to figure oligarchs? out which. If if you could, we were just trying to figure out which is worse, or if there's there's effectively no difference because the whole point is that politicians shouldn't be bent one way or the other. Because of who or because in one case they're being bent in one case, you would presume, of course, this is all hypothetical. We should point out again in one instance that the um, allegation is that views were bent as a result of money. And in another, the allegation is that a candidate is pushed aloft by the mountain of cash, that a candidate who otherwise might not win has such overwhelming air power support from a billion dollars that they do win and therefore these ideologies. Right. So in, in one, the billionaires have bought politics and the other, the billionaires are buying a particular favor. I think it's worse that the billionaires have bought politics. I think the way that the Republican Party is in the thrall of a bunch of very rich people is completely disturbing, totally different from what's going on with Hillary Clinton and really problematic. And it's so aggravating to have conservatives just beating the heck out of Clinton, who kind of deserves to have the heck beaten out of her, but to to have them beating the heck out of her when the entirety of the Republican political apparatus is upheld by these gigantic, hugely wealthy people who are benefiting inordinately from terrible tax policies and terrible regulatory policies that that favor the rich overwhelmingly. So I guess I think that the fact that the billionaires have bought the system is more problematic than billionaires are buying one favor for a mining company. I guess what 
troubles me, though, is the notion, and I guess this is like you have to start connecting the dots maybe more than is reasonable, but when you start worrying that the Clintons are too tied to Wall Street, I know Wall Street is different from these foreign donors to the Clinton Foundation, but it just starts to seem like they're really susceptible to money. And then you start feeling like, well, they could be susceptible to domestic money, too. And maybe we don't even know about, I'm sure we don't, all of the ways in which they are moving over a little bit. And this is part of Elizabeth Warren's critique of Hillary Clinton in Ryan Liz's profile of Warren this week in The New Yorker. The lead is about Clinton changing her mind, according to Warren, about a bill that would have been bad for the banking and the credit card industry after she was elected to Senate because of Wall Street influence. It starts to all feel like it's saying something about how much integrity she has and how reliable a progressive on financial issues she really is. Right. And so and we one thing we should point out is in our little hypothetical before, it's also possible that you can be bought both for the specific uh, favor that a particular person wants and bought for an ideology. So there's plenty of people who believe in certain ideology who are trying to promote Hillary Clinton. I think what's interesting, Emily, about just mapping the different ways in which this influence takes place. So you spend a lot of time with people on Wall Street who, hey, I talked to that guy. He was really interesting, and he had some good thoughts about this bill. You know, he really explained it to me. So what happens is the check they give is not like you don't feel a sense of obligation, like, oh, boy, I'm in the black in my campaign coffers now because all this money people gave me. That is, though, that obligation does get felt by politicians. But the other, perhaps more insidious route, is that you spend time in the company of people who populate this world. They seem nice and normal. They actually have really cool ideas about their kids and, hey, they're doing all this stuff about water in Africa, and they're really people who are good, have good hearts. And, you know, he's telling me this thing about this bill. That seems really unfair. And so then you, by osmosis, come to a position that is um, tattooed or is kind of marinating in the, this other world. And that just becomes the way you think. Right. Yeah, and it becomes right. socially uncomfortable in all those kind of soft ways to be aggressively challenging them, right? I mean, one thing about Elizabeth Warren is that she gets knocked for kind of not playing well with others. But when you start to read her quote, sometimes I just feel like she's sort of Barney Frank-like. She's just kind of calling it like it is, and it's very unvarnished, and there's something refreshing about that. It makes you realize how rarely we actually hear of views like well, that. Well, isn't it, isn't it nice? So it, there's this profile of Warren which makes the case that actually her not running for president is, her, is a great strength for her. If she runs for president, she becomes just a, a candidate who, who's in the, in the game. But as this outside voice of conscience, Hillary has to sign things off of her. People have to get her good – have to have her good opinion. So there's that argument. And then we have Bernie Sanders who announced he's running for president who will presumably make very left-wing populist – socialist cases for various issues that progressives are going to like. This is going to force Hillary to at least pay attention to the left in a way that presumably is going to be good. I wonder about Bernie Sanders. Oh, maybe Sanders. Bernie Sanders has the opposite effect. Well, hold on. I think we could argue. We should talk that <laughs> up. But I just want to run something talk? by. I want to run something by you and the listeners and see if you think these two statements are, you know, in any way similar. So here's candidate A. It is disgraceful that millionaire hedge fund managers are able to pay lower tax, lower effective tax rates than truck drivers or nurses because they take advantage of a variety of loopholes that their lobbyists wrote. So that's candidate A. Candidate I know who that is. Candidate B. Who do you think candidate A is? It's Hillary Clinton. Clinton. Candidate B. And there's something wrong when hedge fund managers pay lower tax rates than nurses or the truck truckers that I saw on I-80 oh, as I was Hillary driving Clinton. here over the last two <laughs> days. Candidate B. 
So who was candidate A? Well, maybe Warren? candidate A is is Sanders. is uh, is uh, some Republican then. No, it's Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Sanders has been talking about truck drivers yeah. and nurses and the and the tax code for months and months and months. And then Hillary Clinton at her and has repeatedly at her events is now using the identical example. And what that says to me when when Bernie Sanders, um, that was nice though. You played right into my hands there. Um, when Bernie Sanders announced his campaign and its emphasis on the middle class and working people, Hillary Clinton through Twitter said, I agree with Bernie Sanders. So it seems to me what he's going to do, because in his announcement, if in fact he wanted to have a big debate about these ideas, he would say, you know, Hillary Clinton says she wants to be the people's champion. If she wants to be the people's champion, then she would do X, Y, and Z. That's what I believe. But she is doing Q, W, and R, and that's not being the people's champion. He would create a debate instantaneously. Instead, he announced, he said what he believed, he attacked Republicans, said they had a lot of money, and he kind of paddled along in the shallow end. And if he does that, what seems to me happens is Hillary Clinton takes the stuff she likes and then as one of her strong proponents in the Congress explained to me today and then Bernie Sanders ends up being a nice and useful foil because people say whoo at least she's not like way over there to right. the left right. so that's in his hands he could ruffle things up a little bit more and say don't take my ideas you don't really believe in them because of what Emily said you're you have ties to Wall Street and all these other things but if he doesn't do that then he's just like this useful kind of Things she can use uh, not only to enjoy portions of his speech nearly verbatim, but also to kind of take the ideas and say, of course, we're all from the middle class for sure. All right, Bernie Sanders, put on your boxing gloves. We want to see you out there for the match. Last question for you, Emily, which is, do you think that the Clinton cash stories combined with the email stories are painting a portrait of Clinton as entitled, privileged, rich, out of touch, enough that it's going to be damaging for her? Or, or will this disappear, get out of the bloodstream, because this is all happening pretty early? I mean, it's early, but I feel like it's a tin can that's rattling behind her, and it keeps collecting little bits of material. And reminding those of us who have been suspicious of her at various times from all different parts of the political spectrum, why we did not like her and why we were suspicious. And if there are enough good things about her campaign, then you'll stop hearing the rattling of that tin can as loudly. It'll be muffled. You'll move along. But if not, it's going to seem significant. And then it could depress turnout or, you know, give a Republican candidate more of an opening than he or she would otherwise have. I guess he would be the right pronoun to use in that sense, not she. (laughs) All right. We have another sponsor before we get to Cocktail Chatter, which is Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for fractional prices. The mattress industry has forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups, but Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing savings directly onto consumers. Casper mattress is a new kind of hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. And mattresses can often often cost well over $1,500, but Casper mattresses cost between $500 for a twin-sized, $750 for a full-sized, $850 for a queen-sized, and $950 for a king-sized mattress. Buying a Casper mattress is also completely risk-free. It offers free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. It is that simple. Statistically, they've got statistics, people. Lying on a bed for four minutes in a showroom has no correlation to whether a mattress is the right one for you. That's why Casper has turned the buying process into a risk-free experience. Casper understands the importance of truly trying out a mattress that in all reality you will spend one-third of your life on. So you get a 
an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price, two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, a risk-free trial and return policy. They're made in America, and they are much less expensive than mattresses you will buy in the showroom. So get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash political. That's promo code political. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Who wants to go first today? Who's got a great cocktail chatter? I've got a pretty good no, one. No, you should say who's uh, who's less confident, therefore doesn't want to have You're to always, But you always else. talk down your chatters, Emily. But I, I know, have to say, for good I have reason. to say, if I were ranking our chatters, I would, here's how I would rank them. Mm, John is a clear one. <laughs> I'm a clear two, and you're a clear three. There and John and I, and I would say the gap between me and John is smaller than the gap between me and you. <laughs> Oh my God! You, you just so mean. so mean to her. I know. I know. <laughs> it was so vicious. I'm just trying to. <laughs> now I have to up my to chatter game from here on out. I don't think I needed more time today to yeah. realize oh, you, I was oh, who didn't, be. Who we like? We had time. No, I'm just saying I didn't know that you were gonna <laughs> shit oh all over God, my chatter, so I'm not ready to abuse. Like, suddenly burst onto the scene as a new person, but I am ready to have a sort of moment of delight that. Budweiser came up with such an incredibly bad slogan for a new Bud Light campaign. They are in trouble because their new slogan said, the perfect beer for removing no from your vocabulary for the night. Right as we were having a huge debate on college campuses and elsewhere, everywhere, about the role of yes and no in sexual encounters. And I just, I kind of love these moments because it suggests that there are like a bunch of ad reps at writers of copy sitting around in a room somewhere who like are just completely divorced from changing social norms and a couple of years worth of news coverage and events and i just always want to it's like the anti-mad room room that you want to be in to imagine how people came up with that slogan and then how the executives at bud light signed off on it now they are the targets of a of course vicious social media campaign and i think they've already withdrawn their slogan they did I feel bad. I don't, I don't feel bad because it was actually unbelievably <laughs> you feel stupid. Bad for Bud but Light. I, I do think that the that the whole Bud Light overall campaign, which is just sort of, hey, you drink Bud Light, crazy things are going to happen to you, is actually you like very. Effective. I watch a lot of sports and I see those ads and I think those are great ads. I like these ads. So they really they really screwed the pooch on that one though. Not to they didn't weren't endorsing bestiality. Mm. That was a that was a metaphor. John, <laughs> what's your chatter? We're in a weird place there. Uh, my chatter is chatter. my chatter is about a guy named uh, Roscoe Conkling. I'm calling foul. You already podcast about Roscoe Conkling. I know, but I didn't. No, no. I, but this. Well, hold on. I got to get to the second sentence. <laughs> You're not so while I was doing all my David's stop, praise, and thus he is bitter. While I was doing the whistle stop this week on the election of 1884, I came across this guy Roscoe Conkling, who plays a role. And but this is what I didn't include in the whistle stop. So Roscoe Conkling was a member of Congress and a member of the of the Senate. He was the first senator from New York to serve three terms. He was also the last person, Emily, listen closely, to refuse a U.S. Supreme Court appointment after he'd always already been confirmed, which is kind of funny because now wow. you've got to be like locked into a lifetime of pain before you can even go through the incredibly painful nomination process. The reason he was in Whistlestop is because he wouldn't endorse James G. Blaine, who was the Republican nominee of the party. So in the state of New York, which is a big deal. It's like if Sherrod Brown didn't endorse Hillary Clinton if she gets the nomination. What was great 
about Roscoe Conkling, though, was not the political stuff, but he was a bodybuilder and a um, a fitness nut. And so in the Congress, he was the bodyguard for Thaddeus Stevens, who was the great abolitionist and d- hero of David Plotz. And his lifelong ambition was to one day be played in a movie by Tommy Lee Jones, which was fulfilled in the Lincoln movie. He was this big, burly-chested guy who boxed and, and lifted weights, but he also was known as the strutting dandy because while other senators wore just all black. Roscoe wore, he wore green trousers, scarlet coats, striped shirts, and yellow shoes. So he looked like Willy Wonka. But then the fun part is, this apparently was very attractive to the ladies of the late 19th century. He was apparently like a famous and extravagant and really productive womanizer. And the best um, example of this was that he was having an affair with Kate Chase Sprague, which brings us back to the Supreme Court, which is the daughter of Salmon P. Chase, who was a justice Mm. of the Supreme Court. So he was such a womanizer that in his obituary in the New York Times tells the story, had to tell the story of when Mr. Sprague confronted the philandering couple at their Rhode Island summer home. And this is how the New York Times put it. The late Senator Roscoe Conkling was a frequent visitor at Kenoche, which is Sprague's estate, and was unpleasantly conspicuous in the proceedings which ended in the divorce of the Sprague's. Mr. Conkling was once forbidden by Mr. Sprague to come to Kenoche. Despite this, however, the executive, Sprague, later met the senator, Conkling, on the estate coming from the rear of the house. Some reports had it that, that the a sen- metaphor? <laughs> some reports had it. I was waiting for that. So you didn't you missed that beat a little bit. Some reports had it that the senator jumped from a window, and after him came the governor with his old Civil War musket in his hands. He was such a popular fellow that people named babies after him, including uh, one baby that was named was um, Roscoe Conkling Fatty Arbuckle. Fatty Arbuckle, we will later know, was had a famous Crazy. sex scandal. Yeah, amazing. A- and the reason his father named Fatty Arbuckle Roscoe Conkling is his father, who was a drunk and an angry man, suspected that the boy was not indeed his, but was Roscoe Conkling's or was someone else's, and therefore like called him Roscoe Conkling because he was like, he ain't that kid, ain't mine. Um, and then Fatty Arbuckle had a, an extraordinary um, sex scandal, rape scandal. Uh, it was all faded. Own, he couldn't even help it. Which is its own. Right, exactly. He was locked in. So then the final chapter in our Roscoe Conkling story was in, in um, March of 1888 in New York. It was unseasonably warm. It was the warmest winter in the history or in 20 years, 17, 20 years. Then suddenly it starts to blizzard and Conkling is working downtown, walks to his club, which is at Madison Square Garden, because he's like this big bodybuilder guy. He can handle a little bit of snow. But it turns out it's like a once in a lifetime blizzard. It snowed 40 inches in 30 hours. The winds were 48 miles an hour, tearing the shovels out of the hands of the men trying to clear the snow. And Conkling basically describes, and I won't go through it, but his his trudging through this snow and basically he arrives at his club the doorman the porter at the doorway says he looked out into the blizzard when he saw a figure in the snow off to his left falling then rising moving a few feet then falling again conkling collapses dies two weeks later and there is now a statue near madison square garden commemorating the place where roscoe conkling effectively died from being a big dummy and walking through this blizzard half the length of the island of manhattan so I thought that was a pretty cool little detour that kept me from going back to the election of 1884. But um, that's that, the story of Roscoe Conkling. That was pretty darn great. But John I mean, Emily, your, your, your chatter was good. Uh, you haven't even heard my chatter. I'm, I'm just 
picking up on your theme of mean <laughs> judgment of chatter. So go ahead. Uh, sorry. All right. I apologize, Emily. That was mean. That's I was fine. Just, I it's was fine. Just, it's I, fine. I was just in a mood. So with the the upheaval and the turmoil in Baltimore this week, I was just thinking back to the last terrible period of American urban upheaval in the late 1960s, and in particular after the death of Martin Luther King, and and recalled this you know incredible incident about James Brown in the city of Boston. It's an amazing story, and I, I found a, an incredible account of it, a really great account of it in the week, titled, Did James Brown Save Boston? So after the death of Martin Luther King on April 4th, 1968, there were was rioting in many, many American cities. Not by no means all, but many American cities, uh, there, were, there were riots. James Brown was scheduled to play a concert at Boston Garden the next night on April 5th, and he was scheduled to be paid $60,000 for this concert. And and there was worry. So there was one proposal that the concert should be canceled. But then there was the sense like, my God, what if we cancel the concert? And there's, you know, there's 14,000 young African-Americans who suddenly have been in the middle of Boston, not a city super hospitable to African-Americans. But there are 14,000 young African-Americans downtown in Boston who've now just been their evening's entertainment has been taken away at a time of political tension. So there was this, this sort of scrambling, what can we do? And the city hall, Mayor Kevin White decided, they decided, Kevin White didn't know who James Brown was, but Kevin White decided they're going to broadcast the concert live on television so that people have something to do on the, the night of April 5th. James Brown is kind of annoyed by this because what this means is that instead of having 14,000 people paying to come see his concert, only a few thousand are going to come because they can all get it free. And so so there's a deal made where where the city says, okay, we'll pay you your fee of $60,000. And a small great coda to this is that they the city then reneged later on the deal and they only paid $10,000 of it. Oh, but, man. But so Brown ends up playing this concert before a relatively small crowd in Boston Garden. And he's he's amazing. He does an incredible show. He brings out Kevin White and he he says, let me just, just let me say, I had the pleasure of meeting him. And I said, honorable mayor. And he said, look, man, just call me Kevin. And look, this is a swinging cat. Oh, yeah. Give him a big round of applause, ladies and gentlemen. He's a swinging cat. This man is together. And he brings out Kevin White. And then there's a moment where the, the crowd is getting kind of wild and crazy. And, and the white police officers who are brought in for security begin to sort of line, line the stage. And there's a sense of violence and Brown sort of stops the show and, sa- and says, let me finish the show. We're all black. Let's respect ourselves. Are we together or we ain't? And the audience yells back, we are. Boston remained peaceful and quiet that evening. And the, this concert was, you know, was watched by many. And it went down as this incredible moment in James Brown's history, one he was very, very proud of, especially uh, later because he went and, and was invited. Lyndon Johnson then invited him to a state dinner and personally thanked him for having done this. So the night James Brown saved Boston. Check it out in the week. It made Kevin White like 18 times cooler. It is funny that you have a mayor, Kevin White, and James Brown. What's the cult? Their names. Uh, Acting out their racial dynamic. Our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com. Panoply. Check out our show page at slate.com slash gabfest, our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gabfest, our Twitter feed at at slategabfest, and our email address is gabfest at slate.com. You can subscribe to the Gabfest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. Those really help us. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, and Ta-Nehisi Coates, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week.
It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 